Let's open the Word of God to the first verse of Acts, Acts chapter 1. Luke writes, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Luke starts off his, uh, his book, Acts, by giving us a brief little summary of his former book. His former book, of course, being the Gospel according to Luke. He wrote about all the things, all the great things which Jesus did among them. The healing of the sick, the great miracles he performed, the, the lives that were turned around, the, the proclamation of the, the good news, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then after his suffering, after his death and resurrection, he showed himself clearly to be alive by appearing to the disciples, talking with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God and even eating with them. And Luke records that at one time, whilst he was eating with them, he said to them, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Don't go anywhere, Jesus said. Just wait here for a few more days. He was sending them out into the world with the gospel, but he knew they needed help. They couldn't do this. They couldn't do this thing which he had asked them to do in their own power. They needed help. Now have a close look at what Jesus said to them next. Verse 8, he says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you notice the concentric circles, if you like? Jerusalem, that's where they were. They were going to be witnesses throughout the city of Jerusalem. Remember, this is, this is the Jerusalem where it all had happened just a matter of weeks before, when the crowd had yelled, crucify him, when they had put Jesus to death. This was where the religious leaders were who were trying to put down this movement. Reaching Jerusalem, being his witnesses in Jerusalem, was going to be hard. 
They were going to need all the help they could get. Judea and Samaria. Judea was the name of the Roman province they were in, a little bit like the central coast in our context. Samaria, that was a big step. Samaria, that was a, a big new idea. I mean, the first hearers must have thought to themselves, did he really say Samaria? I mean, they're not really Jews. I mean, they're, they're half-breeds at best. Did he really say Samaria? But next Jesus said, and to the ends of the earth. That's to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. I mean, at least the Samarians had some Jewish blood in them, but to the Gentiles? I mean, wow, they were, they were going to need some help. They must have been thinking to themselves, how on earth are we going to do that? Well, the answer for them lay in exactly the same place that it does for us today. You know, Jesus' words are just as pertinent to us living in 2014 as they were for those first hearers. In Matthew 28, 19, we have a, a parallel passage and there Jesus is recorded as saying, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. These verses are talking not only about the birth of the church, but they speak of the identity and the purpose of the church. We are the church. We are the church. And these words are for us today. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And that is what I want to focus on this morning, the Holy Spirit. See, clearly our commission is to take the gospel to all nations, to all peoples. Yet clearly, we are not up to the task on our own. We need God's power to do that. You know, it has been my experience over the years that people have all sorts of ideas about the Holy Spirit, about who he is, about what he does. Well, this morning, I want to speak to you. I want to look at some of what the Bible has to teach us about the Holy Spirit. So hang in there with me. We're going to look at a heap of verses together. But hopefully by the end of it, we'll have a clearer idea about this person whom the Bible says comes and dwells within our hearts when we decide to follow Jesus. So let's pray as we begin to do that together. <coughs> Holy Spirit, I would ask now that you would stand between my words and our ears, that you would stand between my words and our hearts and that you would speak as only you can into the deep recesses of each of us here today as individuals that you would allow us to hear just exactly what we need to hear from your word today and we pray this in jesus name amen first thing the scriptures teach us about the holy spirit is that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not an it. Holy Spirit is not an it. Think about how you would feel if someone referred to you as an it. Do you know where Murray is? Yes, it's over there. The Holy Spirit is not a thing or a force. The Holy Spirit is not a symbol, such as a dove, the wind or fire. Though the Holy Spirit is... 
not an influence, though he does exert influence. The Holy Spirit is not a power, though he does bring power. The Holy Spirit is a person. Have a look at John 16, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Do you notice all the he's in that verse? The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. But then the question is, well, what type of person? Well, clearly, he is the type of person who can be known. John 14, verse 17 says, The Spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. They are profound words, are they not? The eternal God, his spirit lives within you. So he's a person who can be known. Now, the significant thing here is that he is also God. I mean, I can accept that God is a person, not a force or an influence, but a self-aware being, a person. But how does one know God? That is a significant thing, to be able to know God. Well, I guess another question is raised here as well. How do we know that the Holy Spirit is God? How do I know that he's not just a really powerful angelic being? You see, the, the Bible talks about angels, about archangels and about cherubim. How do I know that the Holy Spirit isn't a created being like the angels? Well, there's a few things. Throughout the scriptures, a number of attributes that are given to the Holy Spirit, which are attributes which are exclusively of God. In other words, they are things which we recognise that only God has as part of his nature. Only God is eternal. There was never a time when God was not. He's outside of time. He, he created it. And we now know that he wove it together. Time, I mean. He wove time together with material space. We've just proved that in recent years. Einstein had the idea many centuries ago, but scientists have just proven that time and space is actually woven together. So God created it all, time and space, and he is actually outside of his creation. Being eternal is an attribute of God, right? In Hebrews 9.14 it says, How much more then... Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so we may serve the living God? The spirit is eternal, therefore he's God. Number two, he is all-powerful. You need to think about this next point. When the angel of the Lord was speaking with Mary, the mother of Jesus, he said this to her. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. I want to suggest to you this morning that only God could bring about the birth 
of the Son of God through a human being. And at first you might be tempted to think, well, how does it show he is all-powerful? If you think about that, that event, that moment in time and space, right? it was an actual moment, not this kind of abstract thought, but an actual moment in time and space when the eternal God, who we're going to find out in a minute, inhabits the whole universe, he is all-present, where the eternal God is somehow fitted into a cell that combines with a human cell. And God is somehow packed into that tiny space in time and space. If you actually think about that, that is the most unbelievable miracle that you could ever imagine. Only God could do that. Only the all-powerful God could do that. The scriptures teach us the Holy Spirit did that. Therefore, he's God. Okay, so we know from the scriptures that God is eternal, that he's all-powerful. Number three is that he is present everywhere. He is everywhere present at the same time. King David said these words in Psalm 139. He said, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. From the depths of the universe to the heights of the universe, the spirit of God is there. You know, scientists working in quantum physics postulate about extra dimensions in space-time. They talk about infinite parallel universes. I don't know about any of that, but I do know that if there are parallel universes, God will be there. God will be there as well. The Holy Spirit is, is omnipresent, present everywhere at the same time. Therefore, he is God. Number four, he is all-knowing. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing. Apostle Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 2. He said, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Any person who knows the deep things of God, can only be God. And he must know all things. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing. Therefore, he is God. Number five, the Holy Spirit is addressed as God. You know, on a very pragmatic level, the Holy Spirit is simply called God in the Scriptures. Ananias and Sapphira, a little later on in the, the book of Acts, in chapter 4 and 5, it says that the believers, the early church, were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, and they shared everything they had. Just imagine that today. Anyway, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, they wanted to look like they were doing what everyone else was doing. But they really kept back some for themselves. And it appears that they had this investment property which they sold. But they told the apostles, they kind of made out to the church, in a sense, that they were putting everything that they had received 
from the sale of this investment property into the general purse. And I want you to notice what Peter said to Ananias. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself something, some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? Then look at what he says. You have not lied to men, but to God. So the testimony of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is referred to as God. And finally, the Holy Spirit is the creator. First time we come across the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures is in Genesis 1, verse 2. That's pretty early on, I reckon. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So God created everything and the Spirit was there with God. And then later on in the New Testament, Paul, writing to the church in Colossae, said these words about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the image of... Remember that. I'm going to talk about that later. He is the image of the invisible God. Who? Jesus. The firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Do you see then that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were together creating the world, the universe? The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not a force or an influence. He's certainly not an it. He is God, and we always should respond to him as God. They're those wonderful attributes that the scripture teaches us about God. So now that we've established who the Holy Spirit is, let's come back to our verse. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come on you. Come on you, not, not some abstract group of people living in the first century, but on the church. The Holy Spirit would come upon you. But for what purpose? Well, very clearly, to empower us to be his witnesses. That's why. I mean, maybe you have this attitude that God really couldn't use you to reach the lost. I only want the gifts that God gives. I do. I only want the gifts that God gives. And I say that because our enemy does give us gifts. He can give us some pretty nasty gifts. 
But I only want the gifts that God gives. And it seems fairly clear to me that the Spirit of God has a heart for evangelism. It's a very important point. The Holy Spirit is passionate about evangelism, about reaching the lost. He has a heart for the lost. The Holy Spirit comes upon us to empower us to be witnesses to the Lord Jesus in our local area, on the central coast, to the nation and to the ends of the earth. They aren't my words. Have another look at the verse. The Holy Spirit is a person who can be known and known. And not only that, he is God himself. He comes upon us to empower us to be his witnesses. But how does he do that? You see, we need to move beyond a theology lesson, don't we? We need to move beyond just understanding some stuff about God. How does he actually do that? What does it look like today? Because let's face it, the idea of God's Spirit coming upon me, or you for that matter, is a fairly abstract concept. Well, let me say this first. God, God's Spirit speaks to us. Now, just do a little heart check yourself. Do, do you really believe, do you really believe that God's Spirit wants to speak not just to that guy up the front or not just to someone else, but to you. So does God's Spirit speak to me? That's a tough question. And do I expect him to? Because the question is, are you listening? Are you listening? And as you, as you listen, are you giving him the respect he deserves? See, first you've got to expect that he's going to, he's going to speak. But then you've got to say, am I listening in a way which gives God the respect that only he deserves? Revelation 2 verse 7 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. See, clearly God's Spirit wants to speak to us. He's not silent, but rather he wants to speak with us. He lives with us, he lives in us, and he wants to speak with us. Have a look at Acts 13, verse 2. It says, While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. You know, I, I think sometimes if we actually reach the point, that first step, where we believe and we expect God's Spirit to speak with us. We become a little bit impatient with him. It's almost as though we say, look, God, I am a busy person. I have many things to say myself. I, I have a business to run. I have children to care for. I have ministries to attend to. Lord, I have Facebook posts to like. I'm a busy person. You've got two minutes. Come on, what do you want to say? God is God. God is God and he won't be spoken to like that. You know, we do not demand anything of God. We don't. You don't demand anything of God. We simply come to God and ask. You know, it has been said that prayer is expectant asking. 
expectant asking of God. We ask God for an answer. And then we wait. And sometimes in the wisdom of God, we wait a very, very long time. If you don't believe me, you read the story of some of those patriarchs. You read the story of Abraham and how long it took for Isaac to be born. God spoke. Abraham, I'm going to be your God. And through you, there are going to be more descendants than there are sand on the seashore. I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. Pack up your tent. Come on. Abraham packed up his tent and went. And it seemed God was silent for a long time. A long, long time. Often God is silent and suddenly for no apparent reason he speaks. And when he does, we need to listen to his spirit. Holy Spirit empowers us and he does that by speaking to us. Our task is to regularly place ourselves so that we may hear his still small voice. And as we do that, we remember that there will be times when he will be silent for he has already spoken. I think that is the biggest issue for us. And I know this in my own life. I will spend time praying, Lord, speak to me, and he will say something. It will be so clear. And I won't like what he says. Murray, I'm calling you to be a pastor. And for 15 years, I go, oh, Lord, just speak to me. Tell me what you want me to do. Murray, I've called you to be a pastor. So he goes quiet because of disobedience, isn't it? I don't like what you're saying, so I'll ask for something else. Please speak. Please speak. Speak words that I want to hear. <laughs> Often, it is not God being silent. It's just disobedience. Is there someone else up there? Something else that might be said? Get another prophet? Someone else to speak? That's what we read about in the Old Testament, isn't it? Is anyone else that will hear from God? Number two. So he speaks to us. Number two. He intercedes for us. This is very important. The book of Romans tells us that the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings Two deep four words. Who, who does he speak to? He speaks to himself in a way, isn't it? On our behalf. He speaks to the Father. Jesus prays on our behalf too. I mean, I think the point is that God knows that we simply often don't know what to pray. At a gut level, we know we need help. We know that God is the only answer. We come to him just like little children, not knowing what we need. 
Yeah, I think often we are actually a lot more like a, a little kid who's just there with an ear infection going, oh, they don't know what's going on. Do they? Or a little, a little baby who's hungry and they don't even know what they need. Or I'm in pain, I actually need a new nappy. <laughs> but the baby doesn't know that. I think we're actually a lot more like that than we realise. And that the Holy Spirit is saying, what he needs is this. What she needs is that. And he prays on our behalf in a language too deep for words. That's profound, isn't it? But this is our God who comes to live within us. Number three is he leads us. Once again, Paul's right into the Romans. Listen to this. Romans 8, 14. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I love the image of that because it's almost like those who are led by the Spirit of God, those who actually just follow, follow Jesus. That's the flock, isn't it? The flock in the first century, not like in Australia where you drive them from behind, the flock in the first century, the shepherd would just go, come on. And he would walk out ahead and the flock would follow. That's the image. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are in the flock. They're in the family. To be a child of God means that you are led by the Spirit of God. Which kind of makes me think about those people who say, No, I'm in, man. I'm in. I'm in heaven. Yeah, I'm saved. I'm not too interested in what the Bible has to say about how I should live, but I'm in. I signed that form, I said that prayer, I said it. I prayed that prayer, so I'm in. Now, I'm not following anyone, I'm doing my own thing. Those who are part of the flock are led by the Spirit of God. Number four, he guides us. John 16, verse 13 says, I have much more to say to you. This is Jesus. More than you can bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. You see, Jesus knew that the disciples, when he said those words, were going to be heading into a roller coaster, an emotional roller coaster that was going to be just like nothing they'd ever experienced. Jesus was going to be put to death before their very eyes. They would all desert him. Then he would be raised from the death. And he knew that they're not going to be able to cope with this. But he said, it's okay. Because after I go, the spirit of truth will guide you. That's what happens with Paul, isn't it? Paul's so messed up that he's, he's persecuting the church, throwing people into prison. And eventually, Jesus reveals himself. And over the next 15 years, the Holy Spirit just guides Paul in such an amazing way that he writes for the New Testament, pretty much, for, for us. Do you see how vital it is that we are listening to the Holy Spirit? He desires to speak with us. And not just so that we can say, hey, God spoke to me. He, he, he wants to speak with us so that we can be led, <laughs> that he can actually guide us in the day-to-day 
living of the life he calls us to. Now, having said all of that, can I also say that the Holy Spirit is warmly intimate, personal with us. Church, that is us, all of us. We are the bride of Christ. That's the main image. Yeah, we have an image of flock and army and we have all these things, but the, the, the kind of central image is the bride of Christ. It's a very intimate, personal image, isn't it? Think about a pair of newlyweds. I've been thinking a lot about newlyweds of late. <laughs> it's funny because you know, I'm preparing this during the week, I'm thinking about this, and then last night, you know when you have the bridal dance, Jem and Giuliano are there dancing, just the two of them. There's a room full of people, and I'm just standing off to the side watching, thinking, wow, those two only had eyes for each other, didn't they, for those who were there? And I looked around the room, and it was like people everywhere were just captivated with this couple who were in love. But yeah, that's what this is about. It's almost like the whole universe is looking at this couple dancing. Who's the couple? It's Jesus and us. It is. It's Jesus and us dancing. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. It's a lovely image, isn't it? But when we actually think, now this is the Holy Spirit's relationship with us, with you. You know, some people think of God as having this big stick that he's standing over with us with this kind of book of rules. And he's just itching for us to break a rule so he can whack us. Now, that is not the image of God that Jesus shows us. Remember what we read earlier? That Jesus is the exact image of God. That's what Paul says, isn't it? You know, I was speaking with someone recently about the difference between God and Jesus, God's son. Remember this, Jesus, you just got to get this, Jesus is not like God. Jesus is not like God, but rather God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. You see, if you go the other way around and you say Jesus is like God, we all get this messed up idea of who God is. We tend to create God in our own image somehow. And then we go, okay, so Jesus is like that. No. Jesus said, you look at me and you have seen the Father. That's what upset people so much. Jesus said, call him Daddy. This is the truth. God is actually like Jesus, laying his life down for us on the cross. It's very important that we get this. Jesus perfectly reflects God's character. And Jesus calls the Holy Spirit another comforter or the counsellor. Think about how real, how strong, how tender a person Jesus was when he sat with his friends in the upper room. So you've got to read the story of Jesus. You've actually got to look at Jesus and say, what is God like? 
you see Jesus there. You look at Jesus. Jesus is the one who, when they came to arrest him, and Peter pulls out a sword and lobs off the high priest's servant's ear, Jesus is the one who bends down to the, the attacker, the enemy, who's going, ouch. <laughs> He's got this bloodied ear and Jesus heals the ear there and then. This is our God revealed in Jesus. So it's very important we look at Jesus. Remember, Jesus is the one who the Apostle John has this close relationship. And you have this little picture. John leaning back on the breast of Jesus at the meal. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it? That, yeah, I look at Phil. Phil's now family. But, mate, if I snuggled up on your chest, you'd be kind of going, oh, that feels a bit weird. <laughs> but that is what John and Jesus had. And it seems that John was you know, probably about 19 or so. That's why they think he was able to get in at the last, in the last hours. He was able to be at the cross because the Roman soldiers went, oh, this kid's no problem, he's with his mum. So he's probably about 19. Jesus is 33. You getting the picture? This is, this is a guy, Stuart's age, who's just close mates with Josh. So much so that they're just kind of leaning up against each other and he's asking him questions. And that's the image of God that Jesus is painting for us in the narrative, see? That relationship, that intimately close relationship with Jesus' model is the very same relationship that we can have with the Holy Spirit today. In fact, I would suggest to you more so because he comes to dwell in the most inner recesses of your heart. The, the, the place where you can confidently share your deepest troubles, your most heartfelt loneliness, your most awful confessions and your honest longings. And finally, as we finish up today, let me just say, often we think of the Holy Spirit. As we do that, we think about experience. Don't we? we think about experience. And as I prepare this message, it occurred to me, gee, I could tell you about all these things in my experience of what's happened with the Holy Spirit. I could tell you about those experiences. When we think about the Holy Spirit, we often think about experience. The thing with experience is that it is our experience. And if we focus on experience, we inevitably end up thinking about ourselves. We do. What we need to do, rather than thinking about our own experience and thinking about ourselves, is rather focus on God, who is so much greater than any experience you're going to have. He really is. Experience will undoubtedly come as God gives it. And our experience is important. But I think in the words of... Um, G.H. Morling, who they, they named Morling College after, he says, if you seek a richer experience of God, think on God rather than on experience. And in doing that, I find it helpful to find a place. 
That's what I meant earlier about we need to place ourselves in a place where God can speak to us. It doesn't just happen. We need to place ourselves there where it's going to happen. You're not going to make love to your husband or your wife if you don't place yourself in proximity. (laughs) You are not going to have fun with your kids if you don't get off the lounge and go outside and throw the ball with them or the frisbee or whatever. You know, we need to actually do something. (laughs) We need to do something. And it's the same with God. I mean, it's so insulting, isn't it, to say, God, I I want to hear from you. I want all this experience of you. But if you could just kind of fit that in around my busy schedule, that's just insulting to God. We need to place ourselves regularly where God can speak to us, a place with no distractions. And that may seem impossible to you at first, but believe me, there are lots of places. There are lots of places, from lying in bed in the early hours to walking along the beach to whatever. You find your own space. But you need to be intentional about it. And there you meditate on God. Good place to start would be Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And being with you, there is nothing I desire on earth. Those two sentences, you meditate on that for a while and that'll change your life. (laughs) Who have I got but you, God? And when I've got you, what am I going to desire on earth? That'll change your life. (laughs) Then he says, my flesh and my heart fail. Believe me, that verse is going to come true for every single one of us. As Louise pointed out very recently, your chances of dying are pretty good. (laughs) My flesh and my heart fail. We're all getting old and dying. But God is my strength. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's a good place to start, isn't it? Stop thinking about your own experience. Don't think about what God has and hasn't done in your experience. Think about that. Those words. That'll help you focus on God. It really will. And as you do that, think about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. As I prayed earlier, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit would be speaking into our lives now. That you would be ministering to us at a deep level as only you can. Lord, we just rejoice in the truth that has been exposed to us from your word today. It is almost as though it is a truth too wonderful to really be true. And yet it is, Lord, and we thank you for that. We just thank you that this is true for those who are in Christ. 
Amen.